Hello and welcome to another episode of Soundstage Access, a podcast that brings you in-depth to discuss many of the complex, beautiful, and creative sides of filmmaking. I'm your host, Brando Benetton, and my guest this week is Jack Gill, an award-winning stunt coordinator and second unit director whose credits include The Rock, Bad Boys for Life, and several chapters in the Fast and Furious franchise. In today's conversation, the 65-year-old and I discuss a wide range of topics, from Jack's early and violent beginnings in the stunt industry of the 1970s, working on TV shows like The Dukes of Hazzard and Knight Rider, revolutionary at the time for their groundbreaking action, and why he chose time and time again to return on set despite breaking his neck and his back multiple times. Jack's relationship with Hal Needham, perhaps the greatest stuntman who ever lived, and their lifelong battle to introduce a new Oscar category for Hollywood's stunt community, plus the work that goes into designing some of the wildest car chases in the Fast and Furious movies, this and much more. If it's your first time enjoying the show, you might want to hit that subscribe button to find all previous episodes from Soundstage Access. But now, without further ado, let's go to our conversation. Jack, thank you so, so much for for joining us on the show. It's really a pleasure. We could begin by asking you about your early experience in the stunt industry of of the 70s. And specifically, I wanted to ask you about the Dukes of Hazzard and Knight Rider because the fascination to me was just how different things were run back then as they are now. In regards to these two projects specifically, you had this to say, quote, My early experiences on Dukes and Knight Rider, we did so many stunts in such a short amount of time. I'll never in my career do more jumps, turnover, or crashes than I did on those two shows. Even in today's world, you just wouldn't schedule that many things with the time given, close quote. So despite the evolution of safety and technology, I'm just fascinated to ask you, what about the stunt business of those years was so unique to you? And in what creative ways would these kind of shows be different to how you design and execute the stunts today? I mean, back in the in the late 70s, when TV kind of broke out and became an action kind of format where a lot of different shows were doing a lot of big action every week, Dukes of Hazard kind of set the, the template for it all. It wasn't that we thought we were doing a whole lot of stunts. We just thought that's what we were supposed to do because that's what they were asking us to do. The biggest problem with that was that there was not any kind of an internet back then or any kind of a way to find out how they had done things in the past because we were breaking new ground. Nobody had ever jumped a car through barns and over you know lakes and over cars. And so each and every time we did it, it was kind of us getting together with some of the older stunt guys saying, you know, how's the best way to rig this? What do you think we should do? And it was kind of a hit and miss thing. Whereas in today's world, it's never a hit and miss. They won't, will not afford it for one thing because of the studios and the insurance companies and everything else. You're given time to rehearse, given time to work things out. We never had any rehearsal schedules back then. In fact, most of the car jumps we did, you just set up a ramp and said, do you think that's far enough? You think you can make it over the lake? And you just went as fast as you could to see if you could make it over the lake. And there were some times where I made it by maybe five feet. Sometimes I made it by 25 feet. So we categorized every single bit of that. Every jump was different. Every jump had something a little different about it. And I wrote it all down in this big manual and we kept it on the show. And so every time as the progression of the show got further in, we could go back and look at jumps that we did and said, okay, this is what the car did on this. This is how far it went. We'll do exactly that jump. We're just going to go over something different. So I used all of that information with the turnovers and the crashes and all the car jumps to go into Knight Rider. Because in Knight Rider, I had all that information already and I was giving it out freely to all the Airwolf people and all, you know, there was a ton of shows back then. And so we all kind of shared it all. In today's business, the difference being is that you can just go on the internet and almost find anything that you want. You might not see how it's set up, but you'll find out who did it and you can find a way to contact them. And in this world, cell phones are easy and you could pretty much be in Russia and talk to somebody, you know, in Boston and find out how they did it and what they set it up. Nobody's really never going to not tell you how they did it. We're such a tight knit community that Everybody wants to protect the well-being of the stunt person. And so from the 70s till about the 
late 80s was when we were compiling all that information. And so now there's a plethora of information on how to do stunts and what to do. Having said that, though, the business has progressed now and they want to do things that nobody's ever seen before. So like with the Fast and Furious franchise, we have to think up things that nobody has ever done and then try and figure them out. But the difference being is that we have months to figure them out as opposed to hours. And on Dukes, it was different, definitely hours. And sometimes you were scratching your head going, I have no idea. Maybe it'll work. It's, it should. And the fact that we had seasoned stunt people on it and people who had a lot of common sense, nobody wanted to get hurt. But I got to say, back in the late 70s and up until about the late 80s, a lot of stunt people got hurt. And you got hurt because you just didn't know what the outcome was going to be. And stunt people were there in case you got hurt. Actors were never supposed to get hurt. So they would bring in the stunt person saying, you know, there's a good chance he's going to get some bumps and bruises and I break something. So let's put the stunt person in. In today's world, they don't even want a stunt person to break anything. Bumps and bruises are okay. But if you break something, it becomes a big deal with the studios. It wasn't that way in the late 70s and 80s. So it's changed drastically. And you talk to stunt people in today's business and they say they've been working for 15 years and never had a broken bone. There was not one stunt person I had ever talked to in the 70s, 80s who didn't have multiple broken bones. It just was the way of, of the business. And you knew that's kind of the way you had to work if you wanted to stay in the business. There were a lot of stunt people who the minute they got hurt, they got out. They couldn't take it. They didn't want to have to work hurt. And I've done it as well as many other stunt people have done it when you've got something broken and you know it's broken and you have to give them one more take to get it through because it's going to cost them a couple hundred thousand dollars to come back the next day. So you just say, tape up my ankle and let's just do it. I know I got a broken ankle, but if we can get this one shot, you can take me to the hospital after that. In today's world, they won't let you do that. As we talk about the evolution of, of shooting car stunts, and you have done a lot of jumps on asphalt, I can't even imagine how much it hurts. Could you talk about a little bit about the tools and devices that you were able to integrate into shooting the stunts to make things just a little safer? Back in the 70s, we had a lot of guys that were breaking their backs doing car jumps because your car is up in the air 12, 15 feet high and landed on the ground, and the thing that takes all the impact is your lower back. So there were a lot of stunt people that were doing that. And when I got on Dukes, the three of us, but we're five stunt guys total, and we were all trying to talk about what can we do to try and fix this. At the times, people were trying a lot of different things. They were trying shock absorbers on the seat, but that didn't really help much. And then they tried inner tubes underneath the seat, and that didn't really do much either. It helped a little bit, but people were still getting injured. Bobby Orison, who was one of the stunt people on Dukes of Hazard, and Jerry Summers, another stunt person, came up with this corset idea. So if you know exactly what a lady's corset is, it's essentially we made it out of sheepskin. They attached it around my rib cage. Doesn't go under your rear end at all. It's just a corset with straps over the top of your shoulders. And they put you in the car and with bungee cord, they grab the straps on your shoulders and tie you into the roof roll bar. And once you're tied into the roof roll bar, I mean, as high as you can get, they didn't stretch you out and put you in a five point safety harness. So now you're suspended from underneath your armpits, top and bottom. So when the car does hit, it's pulling underneath your armpits and your butt just barely hits the seat. It was brilliant as far as I was concerned. When they first put me in it, I felt like, you know, I'm the guinea pig here and I don't know if this is really going to work or not because we didn't really have it worked out the way it is now. Back then, we were tying bungee cord in knots to try and get it to be as tight as it needed to be. And it was 110 degrees out at Lake Sherwood in California. And I'm sweating like crazy. And I can hear our second unit director screaming on the radio. Why aren't you guys going? What's going on there? And they keep yelling back. We're just trying to get him in the safety harness. And once I got in this thing, I couldn't get my helmet on because I was suspended so high that my head was right into the top of the roll bar. So they had to push me down, two guys on either side of the car, to push me into the seat further and then get my helmet on and my neck brace and everything and then let me up again. And now I'm suspended. So that thing to this day is still what we use to jump cars because, like I said, it was an ingenious piece of equipment that keeps you from breaking your back. Now, having said that, the only thing that we couldn't do and we still haven't figured out is the neck whiplash. We've tried neck collars. We've tried bungee cords on the back of our helmets. We've tried shock cords. We've tried everything you can think of. But when the car hits, a 4,400-pound car hits the ground, your neck snaps forward and snaps back. You know, a big, thick neck collar helps a little bit, but, you know, I've broken my neck. And that's essentially because of all the car jumps and all the whiplash that I've had, you know, over the years, it eventually just takes a toll on your back and your neck. And so those days are gone. We don't really do that anymore. And, 
You know, the big car jumps these days, we jump into boxes or we jump into an airbag or we jump into a million different things, which we were not doing back then. They wanted to see the car hit the ground. And in today's world, if you wanted to do a jump as big as Dukes of Hazard, you would probably do it remote control. You'd, you know, remote control the car and just run in and hit the ramp at 75 and let it go as far as it goes because they don't want to risk somebody breaking their back. It sounds like through the course of time, you you gained a lot in regards to uh, obviously a lot of safety elements. Do you feel like you lost anything? Any? I don't want to use the word magic, but... The things we've lost essentially are nobody does high falls anymore. I mean, and I was a big high fall guy back in the 70s. I did a 12-story high fall off a building and I did a bunch of eight-story stuff. And nowadays you do it on a wire with a descender because they can paint the wire out very easily and make it a, you know go away. Back in our day, you couldn't do that. So anytime you were on wires back in the late 70s, up until about the 90s, you couldn't paint the wires out. So you had to fly people on piano wire. And piano wire is very, very thin and very brittle. And so anytime that we were flying in the air, and I did this TV show called Battlestar Galactica, and they used to fly us all the time. And when they did, you'd have these special effects guys tying this tiny little barely visible piano wire on each of your hips and they have to twist the wire around to connect it very slowly because if they twist it fast it heats up and then it gets brittle and it can snap easily so you sit there and watch this effects guy twisting it slow making sure that he's making a good connection because you're going to be 40 feet in the air and i've had piano wire break on me before but luckily i've only been you know 10 or 12 feet in the air when it broke a lot of times i'm 60 70 feet in the air hoping that it doesn't break in today's world, you don't have to do that anymore. You put people on bigger cables. It's easier to fly them. It's a lot safer. But the high fall aspect of it, jumping off of buildings and going into airbags, has completely gone away. We just don't do that anymore. You always do it on a wire, primarily because wires are safer. And also the filming of it, you get to see the ground and you can be on top of the building and look at the ground and see the person falling toward the ground, which gives you another great effect. We even fooled the camera a lot back in the, the 80s is we made a digital print. Well, back then it wasn't digital. It had to be hand-painted. But it was a print of the actual ground, like it was a parking lot full of cars. And we we put a big tarp out and painted the whole parking lot and put all the cars in and then put it over the top of the airbag. And then I would do a high fall all the way in and they'd, they'd take me all the way into the airbag just before you hit. And then you cut to another cut of me hitting the tops of cars. So there were ways to get around it back then. But in today's world with wires, it's so much easier and so much safer for the stunt guy. And it gives you more bang for your buck because airbags were dangerous at the time. It was all we had. And it was, for us, it was a safer way to do it. When you look at it now, there was a stuntman that died named A.J. Bakunas. And one of the reasons that he died is he had put his airbag up in a shed and the shed leaked a little bit and water had come into the shed and gotten on his airbag and the seams on one edge mildewed. So in the next high fall he did, the first high fall he did worked great. It probably, you know, weakened those seams that had mildewed. And then when he set it up to do a second take, he hit it exactly perfect, couldn't hit the bag any better, but all those seams blew and it killed him. So with things like that, those are unforeseen errors you would have never known because it doesn't rain enough in California to know if your airbag got wet in there. And it's probably a tiny little hole that leaked on it. So with those kind of things, it's hard to inspect mildew and hard to know that. So most airbags were not policed like that. So every time we got out to do high falls after AJ's accident, we were all always throwing big sandbags into it and then inspecting all the seams to make sure they were all holding up. In today's world with wires, you're expecting a mechanical device. It's easy to inspect. It's easy to replace all the cable. Everything goes in new. You know, still there can be dangers to it. It can hang up. It can do a lot of things wrong, but it's not as dangerous as an airbag and the seams in it, which I still like airbags. I think they were great, but they've seen the last of it for, for stunt people. I mean, some people still do them every now and then, but just not very often. Maybe 3 or 5% of the population still uses them. When would you go with... Uh, boxes as opposed to airbags in regards to heights? It's it's usually a preference for the stunt person. Airbags are a little softer. They are. But some people just rely on boxes because that's the way they grew up and that's what they learned on. And you have to really hit an airbag pretty flat. If you don't hit it flat, you're going to get hurt or tweak something. And with boxes, it doesn't really matter how you hit. You can go in it because they all collapse differently, whereas an airbag dissipates, you know, the impact. And I've done both of them. You don't really want to go into boxes above 40 or 50 feet because then your box layer has to be so tall that it's ridiculous. Right. Then you got to hold them together. Yeah. And you got to hold them all together. And then they, there's a chance if it rains, it's going to get wet. 
Um, airbags are easier to move around. Um, I've done high falls in, on tops of ice and trying to put, you know, airbags out on ice is pretty easy. You know, we had to go out of a helicopter into an airbag on ice. And if you thought about trying to do that with boxes, the bottom of them, you know, would be hard. They'd slide all over the place. It'd be hard to hold them in place. Where all we did was take the airbag out there and just, you know, tag it in on four corners and you're done. Most people these days, if you gave them a preference between boxes, airbag, or a wire gag, they'd take the wire gag, you know, in a second. Just easier to set up and easier to rig. The last thing I want to ask you about that period in general was a concept I, I find fascinating, which is stunt performers specializing in a specific skill as opposed to, well, in that time, it sounds like they were jacks of all trades as opposed to today, where you can go and get the best of the best. You just did Venom, which, you know, fantastic yeah. motorcycle work. And you can go and grab someone who specializes in that and is probably one of the best in the world. About this, you had this to say, quote, when I got in the business, stunt performers didn't specialize. You couldn't really make a living if you specialized because there wasn't enough work out there. Every Saturday, we would get together, 10, 15 of us, and fall horses, slide cars around, get on motorcycles and do jumps. So what do you think were the technical values of having these jacks-of-all-trades on a stunt team as opposed to today where you can go and grab the best of the best? Yeah, I mean, back in the in the late 70s, all the way through the 80s to 90s, it was a day of, you know, there was a short list of the best stunt people in the world. And a very short list. You'd be surprised that, you know, when you went to call around guys that could really do everything and do everything well, it was maybe, you know, 500 people in the entire world. And considering a lot of them were overseas and a lot, you know, a lot of great people in England, but in the States, we probably had 250 to 300 and that was about it. And when you think about all the projects that was going on, all the TV shows and all the features, you couldn't really get everybody all the time. So you had to be good at almost everything. And if something came up that was an oddball movie, and I'll give you an example of something that I was not a professional at, but I had to learn, was I did a whitewater rafting movie. And yes, I can swim great. Yes, I can do anything in a, in a kayak, but this was top of the line. We're going down class five rapids. And so I had to go out for a solid month and a half and train with some of the Olympic guys to try and get better at what I could do because I knew they weren't going to do the wrecks. I was the one that had to break the kayak in half and do all that stuff because they weren't going to do it. And so you do go out and try and specialize in certain things that you know are coming up. But then again, on that same movie, there's fights, there's car work, there's, you know, there's all that kind of stuff that you still have to be good at. So the fact that we went out and trained on the weekends was always great to try and hone up on what you had learned in the past and how to get better at each and everything. And every weekend, somebody different showed up and they always had something great to contribute to it. And so it was kind of like a family when you got there. There was always beer drinking at the end of it, but everybody was very professional when you first got there. And sure enough, there was times when we got hurt on Saturdays and Sundays, but you learned a good lesson as to why you got hurt. It would be tough to do in today's world because there are so many stunt people. I mean, there's 10,000 stunt people in the business. And to try and get people together on a weekend, yeah, you could probably get 15 to 20 together, but would that really even do anything to the business? It'd be great if you could think that everybody could do everything all at once, but in today's business, you don't have to do that. Yes, we have great people here in Stunts Unlimited who can do everything, but we get on big shows like the Fast and Furious. There are specific things that we bring in professionals that only do that. And they only do that for a reason because they're best of the world. So you bring in the guys that are proficient in that one area and then you put your other stunt people around him or her to make them look great. And like with Venom is what you mentioned, we brought in Robbie Madison, who's a fantastic motorcycle jumper, and Joe Dryden, who's a motorcycle nose wheelie specialist. But those are two guys who are unsurpassed in the business and you didn't have to worry about saying, do you need a special bike? Do you need a special tarmac? Do you need special things done to it? They could do it on anything. Whereas, you know, the people here in Stunts Unlimited can still do all of that, but they got to go out and practice a little bit ahead of time. And so why not bring in the best that there is and let them do what they do best? And that's why you have to do it is because you don't have the time that you had before. You want somebody that's so proficient that they know exactly what it is. Because with a lot of movies and TV, even though you've dotted all your I's and crossed all your T's, there are things that are different and things that happen on the set that you have to alter to very fast. And if you can't make that decision quickly on the set, people get hurt. And so you bring in the best there is so that when things do happen and they have to make a split second decision, they're doing it just out of their confidence and their proficiency, you know, in their business. Whereas if somebody was kind of good at it, but not great at it, he might not make that same decision. So that's what you do it for. It's a safety aspect.
you're sometimes holding the lives of entire stunt team in your hands. And again, it's being asked to deliver under pressure. What is the understanding when you, things do go wrong, trying to analyze the elements that were involved and in, in where the mistake was made? Exactly what you said does happen a lot. It never goes completely perfect. You know, as things are always adjusting, you know, and especially in big cinematic scenes with like Fast and Furious and Venom. Some of the things that happened in the 80s, the late 70s and all the way through the 90s is that you were doing things that nobody had done before ever. And so you didn't know anything about cages and putting safety cages in cars. So it was hit and miss. And a lot of cages that were first being built were being built out of muffler pipe, which has is really thin wall, you know, steel pipe. And so cages were collapsing on guys. And you know, if you got lucky, they didn't hit you in the head, but sometimes they did. And so you learned over accidents that happened on the set to ask for a certain thickness of the pipe that's going into the cage that you're going to sit in because your life depends on it. So we got to a point where we could talk amongst ourselves and say, hey, I heard such and such is doing a turnover next week. You know, give him the wall thickness of the pipes that we want and make sure that we put in this amount in that. Talk to the effects guys who, who's bending the pipe. And so you were there for each and every bit of it. And if you couldn't be there, you were on the phone with the guy that was doing it, making sure that you had the correct pipe. Because when you're flipping a car, you know, 10 feet in the air, when it hits on the driver's side, it's going to collapse all the way to the top and you're underneath that. So that's the part that you have to be very susceptible to is because that's your lifeline. And so we learned, we learned over the years. In today's world, you don't really, you still ask that question, but you don't really have to worry about it too much because everybody knows, you know, that you've got to have a certain thickness wall. It's got to be seamless. It's got to be, there's a million different things that have to go into it. But to give you an example on Dukes of Hazard, on, I think it was the second year, um, I was doing a pipe ramp with another guy. So it was two of us. We all go off the road and we're going to pipe ramp and end up on our tops. Our second director, Paul Baxley, had said, hey, once you turn the car over, if you can get out of the car, stand back up and take your helmet off and throw it on the ground and pound your fist on the top of the car because all the other cars are going by. It's a race. And I said, all right, fine. If I can get out of the car fast enough, you know, we'll do that. And it was me and Jerry Summers. Jerry Summers was doing another turnover. Well, I had looked out at the area that I was going to land in, and there was a big, huge oak stump out there that was probably two and a half to three feet around and maybe, you know, two or three feet high. And I went to Paul Baxley and said, what if I hit that? He goes, you got a cage. It's just going to bounce off of it. You know, the cage isn't going anywhere. And I went, okay, fine. And I thought, okay, great. He knows best what's going to happen. And so we got back ready to go. And here we come flying in. And I hit this thing and it came in between the top of my pipe and the bottom pipe through the front windshield and hit me square in the front of my helmet and knocked me out. Now, I was still able to get out of the car and take my helmet off and pound my fist on the top of the car, but don't remember any of it. And then you see me hit twice on top of the roof and then I just fall completely backwards and I'm out. I don't remember any of that. I don't remember getting out of the car. I remember any, when I saw the footage, I could see that this big stump came inside the car and hit me in the head. Now, Luckily, it didn't hit me. It could have been catastrophic if it had come in and just taken my head off. But we learned from that. And we learned, you know, sometimes when you've got stuff like that, you put a steel bar up, you know, a vertical bar in between the, the top bar and the bottom bar. At the time, we didn't think about it. You know, in today's world, I would have said, take the stump out. We're just going to wait and cut the stump out. We don't have to worry about it. Back then, you didn't have that option. You didn't have the time to do it. And you thought, you know, probably nine times out of 10, the car would have just bounced off of it. Would have been fine. But the one time it doesn't is the one time it could kill you. So that's why you have to be very, very particular about what you do. And in today's world, they do give you the time. If you have something that really bothers you like that, they'll stop production. And they'll say, this person says, that's not safe. We need to make sure it is. And that's the great thing about having the crew involved in everything. Because if they see something that bothers them, they'll come up and voice their opinion. And if you can convince them that you think they're wrong, then great. But... If they've got a valid point, that's something you've got to address. And, you know, things happen that you don't expect to happen. Like somebody, when we were doing Fast Five in Puerto Rico, I had, you know, 10 cars on the street doing 80 miles an hour. And a guy on a bicycle decides he's going to run around the cop on his bicycle and cross the street. Luckily, he crossed in front of all of my stunt guys and they slammed on the brakes before they hit him. But, you know, things like that, if he had crossed in the middle of the bunch of, of cars... So 
The surprise part of it is still in this business today. The fact that we're still racing cars fast is still in the business today. It's still a very dangerous business, but it has gotten safer than it was in the 70s and 80s, primarily because of ingenuity with new devices and the fact that we have a safety protocol that it's much more ingrained in the entire crew in today's world than it was back when I started. The biggest thing I can say about the stunt business in general is that it's a heavy load to try and carry on your shoulders as a stunt coordinator because you not only have your stunt team in your hands, their lives in your hands, but the entire crew and cast as well. And I don't think that many people understand that part of it is that, oh yeah, you're just trying to protect your stunt people. That's all they really do. But that's not the truth of it all. The truth is that you're responsible for every single person out there. When your stunt is happening, if anybody gets hurt, no matter who it is, you are the one they're going to you know, put in a courtroom later and say, why did this happen? It didn't used to be that way. It used to be that the director was the one that was responsible for it all. In today's world, he is not the expert on the set when the action's happening. It becomes the stunt coordinator or the action designer. And so it's a heavy, heavy load. And when things do happen on your set, it's devastating for everybody because you know everybody's family and you know what they're going through and you know, you know, even broken bones and not being able to work again. And, you know, those type of things happen and some stunt coordinators can't deal with it. Some stunt people can't, you know, their, their families don't want them to do it anymore once they get hurt drastically. And, you know, I think 90% of my injuries happened in the seventies and eighties when it was an era of where you were testing things. And my wife put up with all the injuries that I have primarily because she knew the business. She grew up in the business and knew what it was. Had I married somebody outside the business, it might not have been the same way. It's hard to understand why a stunt person wants to go out and do something again after they'd already injured themselves drastically before. And I've broken my back twice and my neck once. And usually after one broken back, you say, that's it, I'm not doing it anymore. But I knew what the issue was. I knew what I had done wrong on both occasions. And it was such a minuscule decision. Like the first time I broke my back, I did it on a high fall. And the director, after four times of me going in the airbag, wanted me to go in vertically. And I said, I can't go in feet first in the airbag. It's like a pencil hitting a balloon. I'll, I'm just going to go through it and hit the ground. So I have to try and snap myself backwards at the last possible moment so that I'm going through your frame vertically, but I still got to hit the airbag flat. And on the fourth take, I threw myself back as hard as I could throw. And when I hit the airbag, I broke you know, my back. And it was a small fracture. It wasn't big and I wasn't paralyzed, but it was still a fracture on your back. And so I healed up. And the second time I broke it, it was on a movie called Supercross and throttle stuck on a motorcycle and shot me up into the stands at 50 miles an hour, which is really nobody's fault. But I had marked the throttle with a big piece of red tape because it had stuck on me in practice. And I said, let's get somebody to fix this. And I had three other motorcycles exactly like that motorcycle to double this character. I came back from lunch, saw this motorcycle with no red tape on it, jumped on it. Some one of the art director or the production designer or somebody had seen the red tape and said, that's not supposed to be on there and took it off. And I got on this motorcycle and did this big jump and the throttle stuck. And so you learn from those mistakes. I mean, now in today's world, I'd take the whole throttle off and throw it away and say, guess what? If you're going to put that one back out on the track, it's going to have a new throttle. Back then, we didn't think that way. You know, we thought everybody understands what red tape means. It means there's something wrong, but you know, that happens. And it is a safer business for us, but it's still hard to take as far as family goes. It's very, very difficult when family is involved because my wife has been called to the hospital many times and I've been called to the hospital for my brother's been injured and it's tough. It's really, really tough when you don't know what the extent of the injuries are because they can't tell you over the phone. You're trying to get all the best doctors in there and it's difficult on families. And so I don't think that the public or even the business as a whole knows the kind of weight that is put on your shoulders as a stunt coordinator and a stunt person. So to really sustain it throughout the business, you have to have a thick skin and have to understand that you're doing it for a reason. You don't do it for the money. You do it for the adrenaline part of it. The fact that you can do something that somebody else has said is impossible and then show them that it's not is where you get your, you know, I guess your accolades. I'll be remiss if I didn't ask you about the work of a man who I know has had a great influence on you, and that is Mr. Hal Needham. What was the biggest lesson he taught you as a stunt performer and stunt person? 
Well, Hal Needham was one of the guys who was an innovator in the business when nobody was going to take the chance to do anything out of the ordinary. Back when Hal got in the business, you know, he was a treetopper and he was a jack of all trades and could almost do anything. And so when stunt people started out, they started out as extras, cowboys in the business. And Hal wanted to change that. And so he was kind of instrumental in starting to build equipment to try and make the stunts more exciting and make the stunt people safer. And over his 50, 60 some odd years, he created devices that are still in, in play today. And, you know, Hal was was the type of guy that when he saw potential in you, he jumped on you immediately because he knew that he could make you better than what you were. Even though I thought I was a really good motocross racer, Hal kind of told me that, sure, you're really good on a track, but when you get in the business, it's a whole different ballgame. You know, being fast on the track is not what we're looking for. We're looking for something specific. You know, you get in a line of eight motorcycles and I don't want you to be the leader. I want you to be the third guy that wrecks. And so I had to learn from that. And, you know, Hal was one of the guys that he could have taken me under his wing and introduced me to everybody in the business, but I don't think it would have had the impact that it did in that when I first met him, he said, look, you think you can jump a motorcycle over a bunch of cars? And I said, sure, if I can build a ramp, I can jump it. And he goes, okay, fine. I want you to come out to California and I'll set you up. And I did this one stunt for him. And when I came back into his office, he said, I've got your Screen Actors Guild card for you. I've got you your first stunt. I don't want you to tell anybody that you know me. You can say we've met, but we're not friends. And anytime you have a problem, I want you to try and you know call me with, ask me a question about somebody you're going to meet. But I think you'll gain more recognition by doing this on your own. And he said, it will make you a, a better stunt person. But he said, if you do have you know, people that are rubbing you the wrong way, call me up. I'd love to tell you about it, but don't drop my name. He said, when I think you're doing well in the business, I'll call you back up and maybe we'll work again together. So that was probably the best thing that he could have done because when I went out and started meeting people, the fact that I was good on a motorcycle, there were a lot of really good motorcycle guys already in the business and they didn't like a new kid coming in. So there was a lot of animosity toward this new kid coming in. And every time I would try and go show them what I could do, you know, it was, hey, let's get rid of this new kid. The ace in the hole I had was I could call Hal up and say, hey, I'm getting ready to meet such and such. What do you know about him? And he said, here's the first thing. Don't go in and tell him how good you are. Just say you want to learn. When you go in and say that, he's going to try and teach you. Don't back talk to him. Don't say anything. Just try and learn everything that he has. And then when you get on a motorcycle, show him what you can do. But don't outdo him. I know you probably can, but don't do that. Those types of little things really helped me gain friendship in the business without them really knowing that I knew how to need them. After about two years in the business of me doing pretty well, I had started working on Dukes of Hazard and doubling John Schneider and driving the General Lee. And Hal called me up and said, I hear you're doing pretty good in a car now. And I said, yeah, I'm, you know, I've been jumping the General Lee and turning stuff over. And he goes, hey, you want to do cannonballs with me? So I went and did all the cannonballs with him and I did Megaforce with him. And at that time, on like the second or third year on Dukes, he said, tell him we're friends now. You know, it's fine now. You can drop my name all you want. You've made it on your own. And it meant more to me. The fact that I did hunt and scratch to try and get where I was without having some guy come in and say, here it is all laid out for you. I have a good time. It just wouldn't have meant the same. So I try and do that with some people that I see that have the right thing. They have the right stuff. I try and teach them and say, look, you can tell people you know me, but if we go out and start working on things, the problem we have is with social media, everybody has a camera and everybody wants to post it. Everybody wants to see it. But it's different than it was back then. The business is so large now that the fact that somebody can train with me or with anybody in Sons Unlimited doesn't really have the weight that it had when you had Hal Needham, who was the biggest name in Hollywood. I think his name meant a lot more than what my name would mean. You know, because the business has gotten so much bigger, there isn't really one name in this business anymore that is stands out among anybody. There's just so many of us among here that everybody is really good at what they do because they work at it so hard. So Hal was the one guy that stood out, and he always will. And it was one of those types of guys where he made mistakes too. And if you read his book, that's the great thing about reading Hal Needham's book is he does talk about making mistakes and tells it about I've screwed this up. I screwed that up. Most people, when they write books, 
It's all about how great they are and how they never did anything wrong. Nobody wants to read that. They want to read about a real guy. And that's what Hal Needham was. When I had worked with the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences to try and get a governor's award for Hal Needham, and I worked for about six to eight years on it, trying to get them to see the light. And they didn't want to hear about him being a stunt person. They were more interested in him being a director and inventing the shot maker. So I try and tried and worked on all those other things with them to get them interested in the governor's award. And then I would bring back them back to, he started out as a stuntman, he went to be in the stunt coordinator, he was a secular director. And after eight years, they finally said, okay, fine, we're going to put him on the ballot. But I got to tell you, if, if he goes on the ballot and he ends up winning, he has to be there and accept this award. And I had heard Hal at one time do an interview where he said, I don't really care about awards. You know, I just want to do the best I can be in the business. So I actually had to call Hal up and say, I know you don't know this, but I've been working for about eight years trying to get you a governor's award because we don't have an Academy Award Oscar, but this is the best we can do. If this does go through, will you accept the award? And he laughed and he said, this is that interview I gave, wasn't it? And I said, yeah, it was about two or three years ago. And he goes, I knew when I said it, I shouldn't have said it. But I did. And back then, that's what I believed. He goes, I don't believe the, the business has changed drastically. And if you get me on the ballot and I do win, I definitely will be there. So that made my whole day. And the fact that he did win was fantastic. You know, it's for all of us. And I wasn't the only guy that was in there trying to help his effort. There were a lot of other stunt people that were with me the whole time. But it was one of those types of things where you had to fight with them tooth and nail to convince them that this guy was an iconic man in the business and you shouldn't have to go that far. It should have been evident to them that he was the guy that everybody looked up to. The Academy just didn't see it. It took me eight years to convince them. We have spoken about the fact that stunts really are a storytelling device. And I, you know, as you mentioned, I could only imagine what Ben-Hur would be like without the chariot race. You know, it wouldn't be what it is. So I was wondering, when did this initiative for you first begin being this important? And as you've been fighting for it for many, many years, do you feel like there has been a teeny tiny step forward? In answer to your question, has there been any progress at all? There's been a teeny tiny bit of progress in the fact that we have more members in the academy, but we don't have a branch name. And that is a big stepping stone to get an Oscar category is having a branch name. You, we are called members at large right now, which means you're floating in the atmosphere somewhere. You don't really have a category that you're going to stick you in. Even though we're all stunt coordinators and action designers, they don't want to give us that moniker because if they give us that moniker, that branch, then you can say, well, I think we deserve an Oscar category. So they're not going to do that. And they haven't for the last 28 years. They've completely denied us that branch. Why they've done that, I can't tell you the reason. I think there's a lot of animosity toward the older generation in the Academy Board of Directors, and they think that bringing in a stunt category would sully the higher society of the Academy. Because every time you I talk to them, it used to be when I walked into the Academy, they were always very helpful. They wanted to try and see our plight, see what we were doing. You know, we want to really help you. The last 10 years, they really don't want to even see us in there anymore. And I think that can change. I think the Academy over the past couple of years has tried to get new blood in there who really understand what action designers do. And I get it. I get one of the comments from the from that attacked the Academy two or three years ago when there was a big protest about Oscars so white. And it was where they protested because most of the Oscars categories, everybody was, was white in every single one of those. And one of the commenters had said, well, you know, it's just a bunch of pasty old white people who vote, meaning the board of directors. That was probably true back then because most of all the older board of directors were in their mid-70s to you know late 80s and hadn't worked on a movie set in 20 to 25 years. And probably the last time they saw a stunt person, he was falling off a wagon. So it has changed drastically. You know, over the years, they've brought in a lot younger crew and that younger crew does understand what action designers do and how big a part of the process we do include in movie making. Now, having said that, it has not been easier, you know, because we have tried to convey to them that we are artistic and we are technical and that, you know, once we do read the script, we have to then discern how each and every character's action will work within that character's parameters. And that's artistic. You have to, you know, you can't, a guy who's a comedic character who doesn't fight very well, you can't put him in this knockdown, drag out Schwarzenegger type fight so you have to, you know, put together a fight that's comical. 
And that's artistic. You're actually designing the fight for a character that he's built up throughout this entire script. And it's the same with when you have a big action scene with like anything in any movie anywhere. You have to look at what the character's background is and what he's done in the other parts of the scenes to then figure out what this scene, this action scene is going to be built on. And so we do all of that. That's an artistic part of it, a big part of it, because when people see that movie, they see an actor doing something that the action designer put together. It wasn't a writer. It wasn't a producer. It wasn't the director. It wasn't anybody else. It was the stunt coordinator, which we're now calling an action designer. And then after you've done that and everybody's okayed it and said, okay, we like this, then you have to figure out how to do it because you're now trying to put an actor and a stunt person in the same clothes make them so they look like one person and figure out how much this person does and how much the other person does. You're looking at each and every aspect of it and trying to figure out how to protect everybody and get the studio the biggest action scene that they can have. Having said that, you have to do a lot of things. You have to fill in a lot of blanks that you're worried about. You know, you're worried about cameras that are too close. You're worried about cars that can get out of control. You have to put barriers up, big concrete barriers up in front of cameras in case a motorcycle or car loses it and goes toward camera that's in a great camera position. But if he loses it in this turn, he hits the camera operator and the focus puller. And so those are things that people don't really understand that come into the technical side of it. And they do give technical awards to special effects people. So they've already done technical awards. They've already done artistic awards. We fill in both categories heavily, but yet they still ignore us. And the fact that they ignore us is, it's baffling. They've given us every excuse you can think of to where they say, you know, if we give them an award, they'll just go out and try and kill themselves to get an award. Well, if you go by that train of thought, effects guys would do the same thing. They'd blow people up because they want to get an award. So that doesn't really work. And then they said, well, you know, we can't really do that because you don't have enough members in the academy. Well, we've got well over 100 members now, and they still are saying no to us. Now, having 100 members in the academy as a voting base is plenty to then vote on a category. Because once you do get nominated, then, sorry to interrupt, but it branches out and everyone, right. from my understanding, can vote. So Yeah. And then, and then they came back and said, well, you know, the actors don't want everybody to know that they have stunt doubles. Well, it's not about that. It's about the action designer and the stunt coordinator. He is the department head. He or she has to put this together. And it's just like giving the award to the cinematographer. You don't give it to the operators, even though they're the ones that actually did the work. Cinematographer put it all together. He gets the award and the accolades then go downhill from that to the other people. So we'd like to start with an action designer award. And every time I think I'm gaining two steps, I take you know three steps backwards because they keep saying no each and every year. And it's a no-brainer. We've gotten over 100,000 signatures on this petition saying that we really should have an action category in the, in the Oscars, and they say no to that. And we've had actors who send in you know, videos to the Academy saying that we really believe there should be an action category. They say no to them. All I know is after 28 years, there has to be a real distinct problem because all it can do is benefit them. They're going to get better ratings. They're going to keep people in the seat, you know, more. I've talked to the directors of each and every Academy Award, and he said, God, if we could have an action category, I guarantee you I'll get more people to stay and watch the show. He goes, right now, it's a four-hour show, and we've dropped it down to three, and it may get dropped down to two because it's just not interesting enough. And with an action category, we can do it. So it's a no-brainer to try and get it done, but for some reason, there's a real sticking point in the Academy hierarchy and they just don't want us in there. And we are department heads just like production designers are and cinematographers are and makeup and hair. They're all department heads. And we have to sit in all the same meetings that everybody else does and make integral decisions on what happens in the movie. And they can't keep giving us a blind eye and saying, we don't see what you do. We don't understand it. They do understand it. They understand it completely. They just don't want to bring us in. I want to remind people that you're also a second unit director. Just bear with me for a moment. If, if you had to explain the difference between second unit directing and stunt coordinating to your grandmother, how would you really briefly explain it to give context to people? Well, we've changed the term second unit director, and we've just done it in the last year and a half, two years, to action director. And we primarily did that because originally back 25, 30, 40, God, it's probably more than that. It's probably 45, 50 years ago is that when you were given the title of second unit director, it meant you went out It meant you went out and shot... Plates. Yeah, plates. And you shot a car driving by a building, or you shot a guy's nameplate on the front of a desk, or the opening and closing of a door. And that was essentially what a second unit did. 
And it's not that it was an integral part of the movie. Yeah, sure, that were all pieces that they needed. But in today's world, a secular director, which is now called an action director, pretty much shoots every piece of the big action in the movie. And in some instances, like with Troy, you know, Simon Crane shot more days on second unit as an action director than the first unit director did. Because action just takes longer than dialogue does. It's just the way it is. Because it's many, many, many pieces to make each action sequence work. And so... Over the years, you know, it's become second director and it's transferred into action director. And now, like on Fast and Furious, we have a completely separate unit that handles all the action in the movie. And so what the first unit does, the first unit is the acting unit, is they handle mostly the fights and all the dialogue. And then we handle all of the vehicles and all, you know, whether it be motorcycles, cars, trains, doesn't matter what it is, airplanes, we do all of that. And that's essentially on every single movie. When you see Spider-Man, do you see John Wick or you see all the other stuff? There are some significant changes. If you get an action director who is really proficient and becomes a first unit director, he may want to shoot his own action, which does happen. If I was to direct first unit, I wouldn't want to have you know somebody come in and shoot my action unit. I would shoot it all myself. In today's world, if you get a big studio, maybe they wouldn't want you to do that because you have to really be careful about, you know, the actors and how much time it takes. And, you know, you've, you've stepped into a different hat. But it's one of those types of things that uh, to make the audience understand it is you are shooting every piece of the action in the movie that is substantial. Now, if it's just somebody that comes in and punches another guy in the face, that's first unit. But if it's somewhere where a motorcycle goes flying through the door and, you know, ends up in an office room, you know, it's, that's all second unit. And it's primarily because you need to rehearse all those things. You need to figure out when you can get the actor. A lot of times actors will go from the first unit, which is the acting unit, and come over to the second unit, which is the action unit, and they will work with us on Saturdays and sometimes Sundays to do their part of the action sequence. And so we share talent back and forth, but yet we very rarely on our action unit see the first unit team. They're a completely separate team and we're in completely separate locations throughout the entire movie. A lot of times they come up and say, you know, when did you and Vin Diesel shoot such and such a scene? And well, he came on second unit for three days and shot with us and then went back to first unit. And he goes, you mean you were on the movie for four months and you all only saw Vin for three days? And when, I, that's pretty much the way it is. Unless, you know, the actors come on to second unit, you are a completely separate entity. I was just curious to ask you a little bit about the designing process on set and how you like to work with your team in regards to what are the tools, whether it's drawing or miniature vehicles that you use, and how does that help you when it comes to jumping into the action? Yeah, I mean, primarily with the big budget feature films is what we will do is we'll storyboard it first. We'll hire a storyboard artist, and then we will sit down with the action that we've designed and say, let's just give key frames. We don't have to get too involved right now because we're not we're a long way away from shooting. Let's just get key frames so that the rest of the people that read this can kind of see what we see. So once you've done all the storyboards, which sometimes can be, you know, 120 to 190, 200 storyboards, everybody gets that booklet and they get the thumb through it and they all look at it and they get a feel for what it is. And then you pre-visit. And when you pre-visit, it's a pre-visualization and it's a video of what you saw in those storyboards. So it's just a moving animatic, really. And once you get the pre-vis, Everybody can tweak the previs to say, well, I like this, but I want that car to go higher. I want this car to come around the corner or this car should be closer to that car. And so you're finessing every single bit of it. This is way before you're ever on the streets rehearsing anything. So once you've previs it all, you go back and redo all your storyboards and get more intricate in each and every cut. And you go back and sometimes the storyboards could be 300 pages long. You just don't know. With four storyboards on a page, it gets pretty long. But... As you're shooting that sequence, you have that piece of storyboards for that day shooting up on a big, huge particle board and you thumbnail it all and say, this is what we're shooting right now. This is where we're going from that. And then you go back and look at the previs and everybody gets to see the previs. And then you bring out the little toy cars. We have matchbook cars and we put them out on the street and chalk and we draw the street on the sidewalk and we put everybody in each and every car and say, you've got your name on top of the car. Everybody can see where they are and what they're doing. And then after we've done that and shown everybody what this exact piece is, it's not like we shoot the entire sequence in one, but we'll say this is the first piece. And the first piece maybe take, you know, 25, 30 seconds. 
And once we get all the cars worked out, everybody can understand their piece. We then step out into the street, lock traffic off, step out of the street, and everybody walks as if they're in their car. Like if you're doing a head-on with somebody, you want to make sure they're going the right way because the closing rate is at 50 miles an hour. You don't want to hit somebody head-on at 50 miles an hour. So you go in there and you walk it as if you're in a car. and Everybody walks where they're going to go and what they're going to do. You do that two or three times, and then you go back and get your cars. And once you've got your cars and your motorcycles, you put them all out in the street, and you do a quarter-speed rehearsal. Everybody just comes in nice and easy so everybody can see what's going on, and you do exactly what you think is going to happen in that sequence. And after you've done that, you build it up to half speed. And then after half speed, everybody, if nobody has said anything and nobody has any problems, you're full tilt the next one, and you're going to go and crash and burn and do whatever else you were going to do. So there's a lot involved in it that most people don't see. And the reasoning behind that is that we're doing stuff in today's world that incorporates a lot of action, a lot of vehicles, a lot of things that are all happening at once. There's explosions, smoke effects, debris, water. There's lots of things that happen in these movies these days. And so you need to get every single department to understand where they're going to be when your cars and motorcycles or whatever else, trucks are all coming at you at 90 miles an hour. And so that's the reasoning behind it is you try and build it all very slow so everybody understands it all. And then you get out there and you start working it all out slow. So... I've always wondered when you have a full night of shooting and multiple nights of shooting, like in the case of Venom, do you try and structure your night in regards to shooting the heaviest stunts first, keeping the most dangerous ones last? Is there a thought process behind that? There definitely is a thought process with that. Is what we like to do is shoot the most dangerous stuff first when you're fresh. Not to say that you drop off drastically, but anybody after 10, 12 hours, your mind is not as crisp as it was when you first walked in. The other reason we like to shoot the big stuff first is because it gets that stress off your shoulders pretty quickly. You've worried about this, you know, the really big stuff. You've worried about it for four months before the movie started. You want to get this out in the open. You've figured it all out. You want to get everybody in on the same page. So like with Venom, we did some of the biggest stuff. The double sidewinder that you see in Venom was one of our first days. And that's the biggest stunt in that entire sequence. And it had never been done before. And when I first pitched that, we had done Sidewinders, which is one car hitting parked cars. We'd never done two together with a motorcycle in the middle. And it's a big wreck with a third car kind of trailing behind. And so when we did it, we thought it was going to get written out. We kept thinking they're never going to agree to this. This is such a big wreck. And there's going to be parts going everywhere. And we're in downtown Atlanta at night. And we had glass stores on either side of where the wreck was going to happen. And so we were worried about big pieces of metal flying off and busting all the glass in these places, but we had evacuated everybody in all these buildings. But it was a big stunt. And so for two months before the project, I really thought it was going to get written out. And it kept staying in and staying in because Spiro Rosados and Andy Gill, my brother, just kept pushing hard for it in all the meetings. And every time I'd bring it up saying, you know, we just had another meeting, nobody talked about the double sidewinder. And they said, nope, it's still in. We're still keeping it in. So Spiro fought for it, Andy fought for it, I fought for it, and it stayed in. And I think it's one of the most dramatic scenes that you see in the movie. And everything, I'd like to say nothing always goes perfectly, but that did go absolutely perfectly. It couldn't have gone any better, but we shot it the first time. And from there on out, you feel better about the whole rest of the night and every night after that because you've gotten the biggest thing out of the way. Not to say that everything else to that is not dangerous. It still is. But you've gotten the one that was the most dangerous out of the way first, and you're all happy about it. And the studio's happy about it. They've seen it. The stress level now drops down drastically. You're not worried about, we've still got the biggest gag coming up. That's the thing that you really, I like to shoot the stuff, the biggest stuff first. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you, obviously, about the Fast and the Furious. And what to me is fascinating about Fast and the Furious is just the embracing of the genre. What started like a low-budget indie racing movie has become this cars dropping out of the sky kind of thing. And I think the audiences has fun and you have fun. And I wanted to ask you a little bit about how you try and use your stunt design to embrace the genre and the kind of movie it knows it is and run with it. With Fast and Furious, our team came on in Fast Five. So we had never done any of the Fast and Furious movies. One, two, three, and four, we were not involved in. Stunts Unlimited wasn't. And Spiro Rosados and Andy Gill, my brother, we had come in on Fast Five as newbies. And when we came on, we were told that since four didn't do great, did well, but it didn't do great, that they thought five was going to be the end. And so let's just make sure we get through five without anybody getting hurt. We said, okay, great. But we can tell you the reason that it didn't do well is because you went to CGI cars and you're dealing with a franchise that is all about car aficionados. And they know when you start doing CGI cars, they can tell. 
and you're going to lose them completely. So let's go back to doing things real. And there was a little bit of argument there in the fact that they just wanted to get this over with. And so I said, can you give me two cars in a parking lot and a 9,000 pound safe, a vault, and let me see if I can pull it around. If I can pull it around, let's go back to doing things real. And they said, okay, that can't cost much. Let's, we've already got the cars and we've got to build a vault. So let's just see what we can do. So we started with that and I started slinging this vault around with a lot of problems, but we figured it all out and started slinging a 9,000 pound vault around and hitting parked cars and trees and stuff like that. And I kept sending them about the video and they got excited. And once they got excited, Neil Moritz, who was one of the executive producers on the show, he became our advocate and our voice to the studio saying, we're going to go back to doing things real because I think they've locked onto something here. And so everything in Fast Five was as real as we could give it to you. And sure, there's some CGI in it with removing certain things in the background, but almost everything is real. And we couldn't have gotten that without everybody jumping on board. And once we did that in Fast Five, it seems like every other movie genre, even Spider-Man, they contacted me and said, we're going to go back to flying a Spider-Man on wires again, which was all CGI before. We're going to start flying him on wires again because people like that part of it. So you're keeping the audience member feeling like he's a real part of the action sequence. When a family gets in there, even a little 10-year-old wants to believe that he's driving the car in Fast and Furious. And if he believes that it's a CGI car, you've lost his interest completely. He knows that it's not real. Now, you know, you have to understand that when you're doing something like, you know, Jurassic Park, you can't believe that the dinosaurs are going to be real. But in something like Fast and Furious, cars are real and they can do certain things and certain things they can't. We do stretch the envelope quite a bit, but we're still doing things that are practical. We're doing things that we have figured out, dropping cars out of airplanes, all real. All the stuff we did has a real feeling to it Although CGI might, might help us a little bit with, like when the vault was being drug across the street on Fast Five, CGI added sparks on the base because we needed to have the vault skim across the top on plastic and that didn't create sparks. So they said, we really want to see sparks. And we said, we can't drag a real, you know, sparking vault because it destroys the street and they're not going to let us destroy the street. So there's give and take to help each department out, but we are still doing things real. So as we get into now Fast 9 and Fast 10, which I believe they have said is the end of the, the franchise, is we give them as many ideas as we can. They run with them and decide on what they can do financially and over the course of how much time do we have. You try and keep it fresh, but we have got a book of ideas of 80 to 100 action gags that we'd love to see in any movie. Some of them fit in Fast and Furious, some of them don't. But in this big, huge book that we have, we pull out things and modify them to make work for Fast and Furious. And so you're always giving them ideas and hoping that they run with it. And that's what Spiro Rosados and Andy are so great with, is that they go in there and start pitching ideas from this catalog of all of the stunt people. We all sit down in a big room and we have 33 stunt people that we work with and we all sit down and start pitching ideas. And then we all, Andy and I and Spiro all sit in a room and start throwing them at the producers and the director and the, the writer and some of it sticks and some of it doesn't. But a lot of times when you have that much of a brain trust, everybody feeds on everybody else's idea and changes a little bit here, a little bit there. And then it becomes one big idea that really works for everybody. So... I like the fact that it is, you know, a group effort. It isn't just one guy as one writer sitting in his, you know, office saying, this is what we're going to do and we're not going to change it. It never is that. Fast and Furious is a group effort with a lot of people that get together. Not one guy sits in there and says, this is my idea. It's never that way. It's always a group effort with everybody putting their two cents in. And I think that's what keeps it fresh because you're able to say, well, I love your idea, but didn't we do something like that in this other movie? Let's change that part of it. So it's completely different. And then it becomes its own, you know, new stunt. And that's the great part about it is that we are thinking up new and ingenious things, but not because one of us is really smart because all of us are getting together and pitching ideas. We began our conversation, obviously talking about your work on, on Dukes and Knight Rider and I wanted to ask you about your conversation with yourself in regards to the work you've produced and perhaps if you could have given yourself one piece of advice starting all the way back then. I mean, I think over the years, young stunt people need to understand that you learn 
by your mistakes and other people's mistakes. And so I made it a pact with myself and a group of about 10 other stunt people that we were going to go visit as many other you know, stunt sites as we could to see how things went right and how things went wrong. And you learn from seeing how somebody did something. Sometimes you see it and go, wow, I never would have thought that would have worked. And it really did. And I think we've lost that in today's business as that a lot of young stunt people don't want to go see other people do things. Or maybe it's more difficult to be able to do that because the business is so spread out. But they still should do that. They should, you know, if you have the ability to go out on other sets, even though you're not working on that set and see other people do things, you can always learn from watching other people do something that you may be asked to do in the future. And whether there's a mistake on set, big or small, you still learn. And the other thing that I strive to do is that no matter how many times you've done a specific stunt, you have to treat it like it's the first time. Because the times that I've gotten hurt, more times than not, have been on things that I've done 15, 20 times. And I thought, oh, this is an easy gag, nothing to it. And I break an ankle or I break a wrist or I break something like that because you just didn't think about everything that could go wrong and what could happen. And I think that's one of the things that I would go back and do is just treat each and every stunt that I do like it's a first timer. You still learn from all the times that you did in the past, but you're not going to say, oh, this is easy. I've done this before. You're going to go in and say, let's go back and let's you know, rethink this and make sure we've dotted all our I's and crossed all our T's because that's where I usually got hurt is on the little bitty things. Jack, you've been so, so generous with your time. I can't thank you enough. Sure, thank you. And there you have it, folks. Thank you to Jack for welcoming me in the offices of Stunts Unlimited to record this episode. And to Eric, of course, for doing such an amazing job with the final mixing. To learn more about Jack's work and the team at Stunts Unlimited, you can go to stuntsunlimited.com. If you enjoyed this program, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter. We ask you to please help us by taking a moment to subscribe on your podcast platform, rate, or review. Send your favorite episode to a friend to help fellow cinephiles and new listeners discover the show. I'm Brando Benetton, and you have been listening to Soundstage Access.